High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a smile for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Bela and Boris. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, I am Dracula. It's alive! Oh, in the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God! I was greater than any real vampire. Sure, sure. Awake. Have I been asleep? She hates me. Like others. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> the phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. We belong dead. In previous episodes, We've discussed the rise to monster movie fame and the aftermath of it for both Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Both men found that their careers were tied to the character that gave them their breakout hit. But for various reasons, ranging from their discrepancies in business savvy to their discrepancies in talent, Karloff was able to prove that he could do a lot more than play the monster, while Lugosi struggled. As he once put it, A strange thing happened to me following Dracula. I discovered that every producer in Hollywood had definitely set me down as a type, an actor of this particular kind of role, considering that before Dracula I had never, in a long and varied career, played anything but leads and straight characters. 
I was both amused and bitterly disappointed. They only think I can scare children. It is very discouraging. Ironically, much of Bela Lugosi's best non-vampire work and juiciest non-blood-sucking roles came in movies in which he was cast opposite the man who was universally considered to be his rival and the better actor, Boris Karloff. Today we are going to focus on the movies Bela and Boris made together. We'll start with the two monster stars are better than one cash-ins that Universal concocted for their horror stars in the mid-1930s. Move on to Lugosi's belated entrance into the Frankenstein franchise, and then follow both actors over to RKO, where, in the 1940s, producer Val Luton had launched a new wave of horror movies, eventually using the previous generation's horror stars as raw material. As we'll see, Luton made much more use of one of these stars than the other. So join us, won't you? For Chapter 4 of Bela and Boris, Bela versus Boris. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. When Universal decided to team up Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff for the first time, Bela needed the work more desperately than Boris did. Lugosi hadn't had a starring role in a movie in almost a year, which was a long time back in 1934. And he hadn't had a significant role in a quality, major studio film since Island of Lost Souls two years earlier. If Bela had been looking for an opportunity to play a lead character that was more traditionally sympathetic than Dracula, that's what he ultimately got in The Black Cat. In the final edit of this film, Karloff billed only as Karloff, as he had been in Universal Horrors ever since Frankenstein, played the unquestionably more evil character. Boris's Jalmar Polzig was a satanic cult ring-leading modern architect who keeps young dead women preserved in formaldehyde in glass vitrines in his basement. Lugosi would play Polzig's lifelong rival, Vitas Verdegast, a psychiatrist who served in World War I with Polzig. Lugosi's character has spent the last 15 years in prison in Siberia, and he believes that in his absence, Polzig has stolen his wife and kidnapped his daughter. Polzig denies it, but later he leads the doctor to his basement, where the gorgeous corpse of Lugosi's beautiful wife is kept perfectly preserved in a vitrine, alongside half a dozen other female exhibits. You see, Vetus, I have cared for her tenderly and well. 
you will find her almost as beautiful as when you last saw her. She died two years after the war. Oh. Of pneumonia. She was never very strong, you know. And the child? Our daughter? Dead. And why is she? Why is she like this? Is she not beautiful? I wanted to have her beauty always. I loved her too, Venus. Lies. All lies, Yalmar. You killed her. You killed her as I am about to kill you. At the end there, when Lugosi screams, it's because a black cat has run in the room and prevented him from shooting his rival with a pistol. Though billed as Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, the movie as produced was an amalgam of that story, The Pit and the Pendulum, and a fascination with occultism that was topical at the time. Edgar G. Ulmer, the director, had been inspired by Alastair Crowley, whose work had recently been in the news when the occultist began attempting to protect his legacy and cash in by bringing a series of lawsuits for libel. In the end, the actual black cat had almost nothing to do with the movie's plot, except that Lugosi's character was said to be deathly afraid of them. Soon we learn that Polzig is lying to Vitas, that in fact, he's living with the now-grown daughter as his wife, over whom he exercises hypnotic control. I want you to stay in this room all day tomorrow, Karen. You are the very core and meaning of my life. No one shall take you from me, not even Vetus. Not even your father. The Black Cat would feature both Karloff and Lugosi at the peak of their charms and talents, embodying human yet fully dispassionate evil. With his black silk kimono-like robe and slicked-back hair, Karloff would never look more like the template for 80s male goth desirability. And Bela would never look more dashing than he does here, nor would he ever be as sympathetic as this sad sack whose entire romantic and domestic life was extinguished by war and another man's diabolical selfishness. Lugosi's attractiveness is especially apparent in his first scene, in a train car with two newlyweds, Joan and Peter, played by Jacqueline Wells and David Manners. Manners played the milk-toast love interest of the beauties pursued by monsters in Dracula, the mummy, and the black cat. But he's such a nothing on screen that though I've seen Dracula and the mummy many times over the course of my life, when I watched the black cat for the first time recently, 
I didn't even realize at first that it was the same guy in all three movies. Though you're not entirely sure until near the end of the film whether or not Lugosi's character is evil, as he saunters through the movie in smoking jackets and tuxedos, you kind of root for him to steal Joan away from her boring new husband. For her sake. As the film was originally conceived and shot, Lugosi's character was supposed to go mad after seeing his wife floating in Karloff's basement and funnel his madness into trying to abscond with Joan. But once Universal saw the finished film, they determined it was too dark and ordered reshoots to turn Lugosi into a self-sacrificing hero. At the climax of the film, Karloff has set up a cult ritual to secure Joan's body for his collection. Lugosi swoops in to save her, and Karloff and Lugosi, Dracula and the monster, fight each other. Bela dominates Boris and straps him to his own embalming machine. Do you know what I'm going to do to you now? No? Did you ever see an animal skin, Hjalmar? <laughs> That's what I'm going to do to you now. Fair the skin from your body. Slowly. Bit by bit. Lugosi struggled with these lines, and with his shaky grasp of English, couldn't perform them exactly as written. But he was still given the final words and action of the movie, anticipating the climax of Bride of Frankenstein. At the end of The Black Cat, Vitas pulls the lever that will ignite the dynamite that will destroy Polzig and himself killing off all their miserable history. It's the red switch, isn't it, Hjalmar? The red switch ignites the dynamite. Five minutes. Marmarish, you and I, and your rotten curd will be known. Karloff would make a career playing characters who performed desperate, violent acts while also communicating to the audience an empathetic humanity. Lugosi would get few opportunities to perform such nuance, but here, in The Black Cat, as a man who has had his wife and daughter stolen, raped, and murdered by his arch-rival, he proves that he had the essential talent, if not the language skills, to pull it off. It was on the set of The Black Cat that observers first noted what seemed like actual animosity between Karloff and Lugosi, or at least an absence of friendliness. 
gossip columnist Jimmy Starr reported a few days into shooting that each actor was trying to steal scenes from the other. After Lugosi's death, Karloff claimed that such reports stemmed from Bela's paranoia. Poor old Bela. It was a strange thing. He was really a shy, sensitive, talented man who had a fine career on the classical stage in Europe. But he made a fatal mistake. He never took the trouble to learn our language. Consequently, he was very suspicious on the set, suspicious of tricks, fearful of what he regarded as scene-stealing. Camp Bela thought such comments on the part of Karloff to be terrifically condescending. Lugosi's wife, Lillian, later remembered that her husband thought Karloff was cold and that his stardom baffled Bela because Bela thought Boris was ugly. Bela, of course, thought that Bela was extremely good-looking, especially when he made the black cat. Lugosi's final wife, Hope, said it was Bela's favorite film of his career because he thought he was so good-looking in it. Hope went to a revival of The Black Cat with Bela in 1956, a few months before he died, and sitting in the theater, watching his 20-year younger self appear on screen, Lugosi could not contain himself. He cried out, loud enough for the entire audience to hear, Oh! What a handsome bastard I was! The Black Cat was Universal's biggest hit of 1934, grossing almost three times its minuscule $90,000 budget. It hurt director Ulmer's career rather than helping it. Directing Lugosi and Karloff with a baton in his hand like a conductor, Ulmer had made a visually powerful, thematically daring movie that gave both of the decade's major horror stars a chance to stretch their personas in a movie that was incredibly weird and totally fetishistic. And it had made money. But shortly before production, Ulmer had been left by his femme fatale wife, who, like the heroine in The Black Cat, was also named Joan. During production, the director fell in love with his script supervisor, who happened to be married to a member of the Lemley family. The future Shirley Elmer left her husband for the director, who was forced to leave Hollywood for a while until the heat blew over. But both stars remained in Universal's good graces and were signed to new contracts at the studio. Karloff used his windfall to buy a farmhouse in Coldwater Canyon. In Lugosi's Beechwood Canyon mansion, called Castle La Paloma, a massive, gothic painting of himself now hung in prominent position. Bela's contract with Universal was not exclusive, and in between The Black Cat and his next team-up with Karloff, he found himself back on Poverty Row, playing an Indian mystic in a serial sequel called Return of Shandu. Bela had appeared in the first Shandu film as the bad guy, so now that he was playing the title role, this was a promotion of sorts, 
even if it seems like a racist low point from the vantage point of today. Of course, the actually part Indian Karloff had also played his share of Asian stereotypes. He filmed Mask of Fu Manchu, in which he played a reincarnation of Genghis Khan immediately after Frankenstein. Then, in leaner times a few years later, Karloff would play the role of the Chinese Mr. Wong at Monogram. Karloff's Mr. Wong is not to be confused with Lugosi's Mr. Wong, which he played in another monogram effort, the mysterious Mr. Wong, immediately after Return of Shandu. So to sum up, after Boris Karloff went into shooting The Bride of Frankenstein, which is regarded by virtually everyone as the best horror film of the 1930s, Bell Lugosi, meanwhile, used that time to play two different yellow-face parts in two different bargain basement productions. In Bela's defense, his life was expensive, and no one was offering him material anything close to Bride of Frankenstein quality. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Universal next reteamed Bela and Boris on another supposed Poe adaptation, The Raven. Here they switched sides. Karloff's character, a criminal on the run, redeemed himself by giving up his own life to vanquish an evil Lugosi. Bela's character, Dr. Valen, was a brilliant surgeon and pianist whose obsession with Edgar Allan Poe leads him to fill his house with secret passageways and Poe-inspired torture devices. Valen has retired from surgery to focus on his other interests, when he gets a late-night call from a rich, powerful man begging the doctor to operate on his daughter Jean, a beautiful dancer who has been horribly injured in a car accident. Lugosi is begrudgingly convinced to come out of retirement to save Jean's life. He falls in love with his beautiful patient, and she is not immune to his charms. Once recovered, she lounges on his couch in a silk cocktail gown while he plays Bach for her on the organ. You're not only a great surgeon, but a great musician, too. Extraordinary man. You're almost not a man. 
almost. A guard? Yes. A guard with the taint of human emotions. The scar is almost gone. I'm so glad. When I touch it, does it still hurt? No. A month ago, I didn't know you. And now I owe my life to you. I wish there was something I could do. There is. Tell me. The restraint that we impose upon ourselves can drive us mad. I don't know what you mean. In the shooting script, Jean was to submit to a quick kiss with Valen before leaving him to return to her fiancé. This kiss was omitted from the film, but you still get the impression that she's torn between this strange older man who she concurs is a god and her boring fiancé. In case you haven't noticed, this is one of the consistent and frustrating motifs of 1930s horror movies. These beautiful maidens are constantly torn between a dark, dangerous outlet for their desire and apparently virtually bloodless and sexless, but entirely respectable, matrimony. In The Raven, the Lugosi character goes mad from her teasing. And it's sort of understandable. She's definitely giving him mixed signals. Not that it justifies him concocting an elaborate plot to trade Karloff's criminal identity-masking facial surgery for his help in torturing Jean, her fiancé, and her father. But in The Raven, like in Black Cat, while giving Universal the diabolical menace that they believed audiences wanted from Lugosi, Lugosi also got to be the tortured romantic that he saw himself as, and that he wanted to be. Harloff did not get what he wanted from The Raven. As he lamented later, Poor Poe. The things we did to him when he wasn't there to defend himself. After Bride of Frankenstein, on which Universal was willing to spare no expense in order to help Whale realize his vision, The Raven was a low-rent affair. And though Karloff played the more sympathetic character, he felt it was really Lugosi's movie. Boris felt his part was the weaker of the two, and that it invited Lugosi to upstage him. And yet, Boris was paid twice what Bela had accepted for the job. The pay discrepancy would be even more severe on the next Bela and Boris film, The Invisible Ray, for which Lugosi accepted a flat rate of $4,000, and Karloff pulled in over 15000 for five weeks of work. Karloff was disgruntled enough on the set of The Raven that at one point, when a first-time visitor to the set asked him if he knew where to find the toilet, Boris responded, The whole damn studio is a toilet. Boris and Bela stayed out of one another's way on the sets of these films. In fact, Bela was remembered by most of his colleagues as something of a loner, while Boris was more likely to invite his co-workers particularly his fellow Brits, to join him for a cup of tea and a smoke. Boris was not one to speak ill of a colleague. Bela couldn't help himself. 
Bela was taken aback by Karloff's enormous and sudden success as Frankenstein's monster, and he could be catty about it. He was quoted referring to Karloff as a cold fish and attacking his reliance on full-on makeup and costume transformations. I believe solely in illusion. Bela said in 1935, Karloff uses heavy makeup, with which I'm not in sympathy at all. By the time The Invisible Ray was completed, the horror landscape had changed significantly. The new British censorship regulations on horror films had taken effect, making American studios wary of producing films that couldn't be exported to that lucrative market. And as we discussed last week, the Lemleys were soon out of power at Universal. Lugosi's contract there ran out in 1936, and he was not offered a new one. For the next three years, the only screen work he could find was in Poverty Row serials. Karloff, too, found himself lowering his standards. This would be the period when he made his own Mr. Wong serials. But he also had starring roles in slightly more prestigious fare, such as The Invisible Menace, directed by John Farrow. But Karloff's status in 1938 was still at a much lower point than it had been just a few years earlier. Both Boris and Bela were in need of a comeback, and when they got a chance for one, it came via the past. In 1938, a local Los Angeles independent movie theater bought prints of Dracula, Frankenstein, and the King Kong sequel, Son of Kong. They began showing these now oldies as a triple feature, charging 30 cents a ticket. And there were lines around the block. As Bela remembered it, One day I drove past and see my name on the marquee and big lines. People all around. I wonder what he's giving away to the people. Maybe bacon, maybe vegetables. But it is the comeback of horror. And I come back. With not much else keeping him busy, Bela began making public appearances at the theater, taking the stage every night at 10 p.m. to standing ovations. Universal then re-released Dracula and Frankenstein in versions somewhat edited to comply with the new production code censorship regulations instituted in 1934. The enormous success of these double bills nationwide convinced the studio to start making monster movies again, and Bela was brought back into the Universal fold. The new post-Lemley brass at Universal were so anxious to capitalize on the resurgence of horror that Son of Frankenstein was rushed into production based on a treatment without a finished script. Directed by Roland V. Lee, visually Son of Frankenstein, with its wild lighting, harsh shadows, and impossibly cold Germanic interiors, seems more directly inspired by German Expressionist classics like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu than the whale Frankenstein films, or even Dracula. Basil Rathbone, 
plays the son of the original Dr. Frankenstein, who arrives in the mountain village where the monster once ran amok to claim his inheritance to his father's creepy old mansion and the remains of his laboratory. The house the family moves into is an insane architectural disaster, with platforms jutting out into enormous living spaces, casting ominous shadows, and adorned with carved wild boars overlooking the family as they breakfast. In the same room, there's also a picture window with a view of the old lab, which is still full of detritus 30 years after the monster blew it, and supposedly himself, up. There lurks Igor, a version of the doctor's grave-robbing assistant, played by Dwight Fry in both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, except now he's played by Bela Lugosi, in the kind of makeup job he'd previously criticized Karloff for acting behind. Though the makeup tries hard to obscure the man who played Dracula's identity, Bela makes sure he doesn't fully disappear behind Igor's full cloud of facial hair and broken teeth. Indeed, he attacks this role with relish unseen from him since White Zombie. We soon learn that Igor was hanged for his role in the events in the last film, but somehow he survived with a broken neck, which he knocks on like it's wood. Igor tries to kill the new Dr. Frankenstein by dropping a boulder on him, and then coaxes him into using his father's notes to bring the old monster back to life. The younger Frankenstein doesn't have to be coaxed too hard. Transparently an attempt to revive the franchise for a new generation, the bulk of the first half of Son of Frankenstein is devoted to explaining what happened in the previous films and discussing the importance of never letting it happen again. And then, of course, it does. But the point of view of the movies is now resolutely that none of this is the monster's fault. The monster's power of speech has vanished in between films, and Karloff's best scene comes when his monster looks at himself in a mirror for the first time, and has the sad understanding of why every human who can see him has feared him. But for the viewer, the threat of the monster is gone. In this movie, Igor is scarier, and as the deformed, cackling mastermind behind the resurrection of the monster, Bela has the better part. Here he is, arguing with the new Dr. Frankenstein over the fate of the monster. Igor. Igor, I made him walk, but I haven't made him well. He isn't well here. You understand? I must continue my experiments. He is well enough for me. And you now touch him again. Oh. If you want him to be well, you must keep him here always. Understand? I keep him here. Ha 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 
Igor was not supposed to be a large part, but director Lee was a fan of Bela's, and he was determined to give Lugosi as much to do in the film as Karloff had, and to see that Lugosi made just as much money. As played by Bela, Igor is fascinating because even though he calls the monster his friend, Igor is not a friend to the monster the same way the blind man was. It's clear he gets off on dominating the one creature whose mind is weaker than Igor's own. And yet, the monster becomes viciously angry when he finds that Igor has been shot. So the monster destroys the lab again. The misery and rage of his forced existence are made spectacular. But now that we know that nothing can truly kill him, what are the stakes? The only thing that could be truly horrific would be the murder of the young doctor's preschool-aged son, an event the film teases by showing the monster kidnapping the boy. But a postcode Frankenstein cannot go to the same places as the 1931 original. Karloff was, by some accounts, so annoyed by how Son of Frankenstein turned out that not only did he retire from playing the monster, but he refused to put himself into another situation in which he would be upstaged by Bela Lugosi. And in Son of Frankenstein, Karloff is upstaged. Igor would become Lugosi's second indelible horror character. But when Universal tried to team Karloff and Lugosi again, Karloff balked at the part that was written for him in Black Friday, as a mild-mannered English professor who has his brain replaced with a gangster's brain by mad scientist Lugosi. According to Kurt Siodmak, who wrote the story, Karloff didn't think he could pull off the dual role, and he requested that he be given Lugosi's part of the mad scientist instead. Some versions of the story suggest that Karloff requested this switch because he knew that they couldn't just do a clean swap of parts. Bela Lugosi could not play an English professor, let alone a dual role of the professor and a gangster, unless the plot was totally rewritten to explain why both characters had a thick Hungarian accent. Whether Karloff was seeking revenge on Lugosi for upstaging him in Son of Frankenstein, or if Karloff wasn't thinking about Bela at all, the effect was that Lugosi was demoted. Unable to play the part Karloff rejected, instead, Bela was recast in a minor role in Black Friday as a rival gangster. Now Karloff and Lugosi would not even share a scene in the film together. Black Friday would be the last time Universal attempted to star them in the same movie. Bela played Igor again in Ghost of Frankenstein in 1942, in which Lon Chaney Jr. replaced Karloff, who was then starring in Arsenic and Old Lace on Broadway, as the monster. 
Cheney was not a good fit in the monster's costume. Literally, he was so annoyed by his forehead prosthetic that one day, in between shots, he ripped it off, removing a chunk of his actual forehead with it. But he had some help with his performance. Towards the end of the movie, Igor maneuvers to have his own brain implanted into the monster. I must warn you, this operation may not be successful. This may be the end of everything. Better death than a life like this. Now that I have seen the promise of a life forever. But the operation doesn't fully take, and the Igor monster, as he's been called, is blinded. It will not feed the sensory nerves. Bobber, you played me a trick. What good is a brain without eyes to see? What good is a brain without eyes? Clomping around with his arms outstretched, feeling for his way, he accidentally destroys the lab, at least adding a new twist to the standard Frankenstein movie ending, as well as unwittingly creating a new trope for future portrayers of the monster, even though the character was never again explicitly portrayed as blind. Ghost of Frankenstein is good, better than Son of Frankenstein, and even Cheney is fine in it, in his silent scenes and when lip-syncing around Lugosi's dubbed voice. The movie was not a smash, but it did well enough that Universal felt good about continuing to make monster movies. With Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, the studio intended to have Cheney play both the monster and the wolfman. In other words, he would meet himself. Putting aside the fact that even Lon Chaney Jr. probably wouldn't want to meet Lon Chaney Jr. This dual role would have caused Chaney to spend so much time in suffocating makeup and would require more careful calibration of performance than the frequently inebriated actor was able to pull off that it was eventually dropped. Chaney was relegated to playing just the Wolfman and Bela was cast as the monster. This made sense, because at the end of the last Frankenstein movie, Bela's Igor had inhabited the monster. But Bela turned 60 years old on the set of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and he was not strong. The costume was heavy, and his face didn't take well to the makeup. Slowly, more and more of the role was relegated to stuntmen. At one point, Bela collapsed on set, an incident that was leaked to The Hollywood Reporter. In the end, the monster only appeared on screen for about seven of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman's 73 minutes, and he would not speak. Writer Siodmak claimed this was because Bela couldn't say the lines he had written. 
or at least when he tried to, his Hungarian accent, mixed with the fatigue of playing the part and his old age, made his line readings either unintelligible or unintentionally hilarious. Though it was filmed as a speaking part, Universal edited out all of Lugosi's lines, even though it meant leaving in shots of the actor's mouth moving with no sound coming out. While Universal was butchering Bela's work in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman to mincemeat, the horror paradigm shifted with the release of Cat People. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet listened to the third episode of this podcast about the producer of Cat People, Val Luton, you should do so now. But suffice it to say, Luton's formula for a successful horror picture was totally different from the universal formula, which had itself mutated over three distinct phases. From the original Dracula and Frankenstein, to the Bela and Boris team-ups and the first two Frankenstein sequels, And finally, to the current era of supergroup monster movies. Val Luden understood that the meeting of two grown men wearing a lot of makeup wasn't really frightening in a world that was at war, in which everyday people were thinking about death every day. Val Luden would work with Boris Karloff on three films— one of which also featured Bela Lugosi, but only in a minor role. There were a lot of reasons for why Luton's new era of horror was able to provide Karloff with a comeback and not Lugosi. One reason has to do with what Bela and Boris were each doing right before Luton came on the scene. Boris had triumphed in the play Arsenic and Old Lace, in which he starred first on Broadway and then toured with Nationally. Not only was the play a smash hit, but while in New York performing on stage nightly, Boris began regularly appearing on a number of radio shows. So he was simultaneously burnishing his highbrow acting cred and increasing his reach with the public by entering their living rooms via the radio. During this same period of time, Bela was getting cut out of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and after generally getting passed over at Universal for Lon Chaney Jr., shooting a Wolfman knockoff on Poverty Row called The Ape Man, followed by its sequel, The Return of the Ape Man. It is unclear when Bela began drinking on the set of his movies, but he had no qualm about doing so on the set of The Return of the Ape Man. When he couldn't get work in movies, 
he went back out on the road as a 60-something, performing Dracula. In the summer and fall of 1943, Bela eagerly took Boris's sloppy seconds, playing Karloff's part in a repertory production of Arsenic and Old Lace. It was as it ever was, but more so. Boris Karloff went from strength to strength, negotiating each step forward from a position of relative power. Bela Lugosi faced humiliation after humiliation, and when he was offered shit to eat, he took it. Luton had made a big splash with his first three films at RKO, but his string of hits was not unbroken. After he packaged a sensitive story about childhood as a sequel to Cat People called The Curse of the Cat People, and it didn't work at the box office, RKO gave Luton a long enough leash to make two non-genre movies that also didn't catch fire. And then they started pressuring him to concoct another hit. At virtually the same moment, RKO struck a deal with Karloff, for him to star in three movies at the studio. Luden set to work thinking about how he could use this tool of the previous decade's horror movies within the more realistic, evocative horror world he had built for the 1940s. Boris Karloff was actually a good fit for Luden's movies, because Lugosi's criticism of him as being too dependent on makeup aside, Karloff was always an understated performer. Without grotesque makeup, he could more easily blend into the real world than Bela, whose heavy accent was so distinctive. In his first Luton film, Isle of the Dead, Karloff played a Greek general-turned-vampire hunter by a plague. Due to the injury he suffered while filming Bride of Frankenstein, he was now so debilitated that he spent every moment that he was not on camera in a wheelchair. Finally, production had to shut down so that Karloff could have surgery on his spine. This went about as well as it could, and Karloff was able to return to the production six months later to finish it up. While Karloff was down for the count, Luden began adapting Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher, as Karloff's second RKO vehicle. Karloff would play John Gray, a gleefully sadistic grave robber who sells corpses to a medical school and kills when he's low on product. Bela was added to the cast at the last minute in RKO's attempt to glom onto the box office power Karloff and Lugosi had wielded as an on-screen team a decade earlier. Bela was happy to have the work, but he was not fully up to working. Director Robert Wise would later say that Bela was obviously not well on set. Others working on the film suspected he might be on drugs, or at least frequently drunk. He seemed like he was in another world. His wife had left him for a few months between 1944 and 1945, and though Lillian Lugosi would soon return, Bela was still drinking at sad, reluctant bachelor levels. 
The Body Snatcher would be fully Karloff's film, and his only substantive scene with Lugosi would end with Boris's character killing Bela's. RKO would use Lugosi in another couple of minor movies, Zombies on Broadway and Genius at Work, but these were not Val Luden movies or auteur efforts of any kind. By the fall of 1947, Bela hadn't made a film in two years. He had long ago started using morphine to dull the pain of his sciatica because aspirin bothered his ulcers, but by now he was dependent on the drug, which he injected. His unemployment and his addiction became a vicious cycle, each one feeding the other. In a letter to an agent, he wrote, I need a job very badly. I am just human when I say that I do not mind who helps me to get my bread and butter. I have to take it. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, followed. Not much else did. Meanwhile, at RKO, Karloff starred in Bedlam, his third Val Luden film, and the final film on Karloff's RKO deal. Bedlam is strange and fascinating, more of an historical social issue movie about the criminal treatment of the insane than a horror movie, although there is one horrific death that happens in an anomaly for a Luden picture, not off-screen or in the shadows, but in plain sight. Bedlam was not a hit, and in fact, it led to Luden's unit at RKO getting shut down. Boris played the bad guy in a Dick Tracy movie, and the Red Herring in an early Douglas Sirk film called Lurd, starring a pre-I Love Lucy, Lucille Ball. And then, like Bela before him, he found himself back at Universal, playing a swami opposite Abbott and Costello in a film originally titled Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer. It was released as Abbott and Costello meet the killer, Boris Karloff. His name may have been in the title, but this was not a movie Karloff was eager to discuss. Bud and Lou are wonderful chaps to work with, but we've all got to work, don't we? So the less said about this film, the better. One thing that can be said about Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff is that it inspired Boris to move to New York to focus on radio and television and leave Hollywood behind, at least temporarily. We will return to Karloff's later career in our final episode. Next week, we will catch up with Bela in the 1950s a period he spent as part of an odd ensemble spearheaded by Edward D. Wood, Jr. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced 
by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editors are Jacob Smith and Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include things like notes on our sources, our soundtracks, and more. Special thanks this week to our special guests, Taryn Killam, who played Bella Lugosi, and Patton Oswalt, who played Boris Karloff. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.